If you have your Bibles, uh, I'd invite you to turn to Romans chapter 11. And I'm, I'm going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 6, and we're going to be paying attention particularly to verses 5 and 6 uh, in Romans 11. And that's on page uh, 946 in the Pew uh, Bibles. Congregation, this is the word of the living God. Give it now your full attention. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. May God add his blessing now to the preaching of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, O Holy Spirit, for inspiring this word. And we ask now, Lord, that you, by the Spirit, would work in our hearts to give us uh, deeper and fuller, richer understanding of this text uh, and its application in our lives each and every day, that it might work in us to conform us more and more into the likeness of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And we pray in his most glorious name. Amen. Amen. If I were to say, as has been said often in the past 200 years, that America is a Christian nation. Would you think I mean that every single American is a Christian? Most likely you would not. Rather, you would understand that there are many Americans who are Christians, or perhaps you would understand that the overall influence of our founding fathers, the ethics, the laws, and the sensibilities of American society are consistent with Christian principles. But you would not assume by my statement that every single American is a believer. And this understanding would be the same for every country that has had or that currently has a significant and an influential number of Christian citizens. A modern example would be South Korea right now. Uh, we would even call South, or could even call South Korea a Presbyterian nation in terms of the major impact that Reformed uh, Presbyterians have had on their society in the past uh, two generations. But that description does not mean every Korean is a Presbyterian, nor is every Korean a Christian. The same understanding applies, for instance, when we call Syria a Muslim country. 
Not every Syrian is a Muslim. Some Syrians are Christians. Some belong to other uh, religious traditions, and some are unbelievers. So we understand that describing a nation in a general way does not require including every single citizen of that country in the description. It is really, 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 really very important for us to realize that the Apostle Paul speaks this way as well in Romans. When he refers to Israel or to the Jews, at times he is speaking broadly, or as I've just described, generally, not inclusively, not referring to every person. And at other times, he's speaking precisely rather than collectively. That is, very specifically, which may be in an exclusive or an inclusive way, one that includes everyone without exception. Now, if we don't recognize these distinctions as Paul intends, or we could say as the Holy Spirit intends, we will not interpret Scripture correctly. And we can be led far astray regarding God's will for His people, for the church, for Jews and Gentiles alike. Not properly identifying to whom or about whom Paul is speaking uh, in Romans, particularly in chapters 9 through 11, can result in serious errors in our ecclesiology, that is our doctrine of the church, and also in our eschatology, the doctrine of last things or end times. And sadly, the predominant ecclesiology and eschatology in American evangelicalism is a, a glaring example of seriously defective interpretation. The failure of many evangelical churches to recognize these New Testament distinctives regarding Israel and the church the past 100 years has led to major dysfunctional ecclesiology, particularly regarding church government among evangelicals and to what I call funny book eschatology that resembles science fiction fantasies more than biblical certainties. Now we see in Romans that Paul speaks of Israel, the Jews, as a nation, that is, as a group of people with the common ancestor Abraham, to whom God in the past showed favor inclusively. God showed all of ethnic Israel favored nation status when he brought them, the Jews, as a whole out of Egypt and made them a distinct nation and placed them in Canaan, in Palestine, their promised homeland, just as he had promised their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they began 
as God's special people singled out for blessings among the world's league of nations. But that favored status, that privilege was strained, you know, throughout their history. And eventually it was lost due to their persistent rebellion and unbelief. And it culminated in Paul's day with the majority of the Jews' rejection of Jesus as their promised Messiah. Now that is what Paul is lamenting here in Romans 9 through 11. The fact that most, the majority, although not all the Jews have rejected Jesus and his gospel, thus proving to be unbelievers. Now, as we see here, uh, particularly in chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, also in 10, 1 through 3, and verse 21. In fact, let me just read these texts. 9, 1 through 3. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And then in 10 verses 1 through 3. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Look down at verse 21 in chapter 10. But of Israel, he says, all day long... I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, in these texts, we see that Paul is brokenhearted over his fellow Jews who were resisting and repudiating the gospel. But that does not mean that God had abandoned or rejected entirely or absolutely all those of Jewish descent. In that sense, God had not rejected His people, which is what Paul asserts in our passage here in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Paul has made it clear to this point in Romans that some of God's people are ethnic Jews, but God's people are not exclusively Jews. His people are from all the nations of the world, from Jewish and Gentile origins. Abraham, chapter 4 in Romans, is the forefather of both, Paul tells us, both Jews and Gentiles. What unites them is the same saving faith God gave Abraham by His grace. And Paul has labored this point from chapter 2 in Romans forward. And he's made a distinction between merely ethnic Jews and believing Jews. Not all ethnic Jews, not all ethnic Israel, not every single Israelite 
is a believer. But some in the Old Testament era, such as the 7,000 in Elijah's day, which Paul cites here in verse 4, and some in Paul's day, such as Paul and the rest of the apostles themselves. And he notes that, of course, in verse, verse 1. And some ethnic Jews today, such as our pastor at Cornerstone, Todd Bordeaux, raised in the Jewish in a Jewish tradition at home. Some are believers. And this group from ethnic Israel, whom God turns into believing Israel, Paul calls, look at the word, a remnant. Very important word. This is actually Isaiah's word, which Paul quotes earlier in Romans chapter 9, verse 27. And he applies it to those in his own day, which in our text Paul calls the present time in verse 5. And of course that present time extends to our day, namely right now. So those Jews who are truly redeemed by grace as God's people, regardless of when they appear in redemptive history, are a remnant of ethnic Israel, not all of Israel. Now, the Hebrew or the Greek word remnant in either language has essentially the same meaning uh, as our English word. A remnant is a remaining part of something usually a small part or what is left over. It is a scrap or a fragment of the whole. Of course, we often use the word in reference to cloth or carpet, the small piece that is left when the bulk of the material has been used. So it's usually of less value or limited use. But that is not the case in God's economy. This is one of the great ironies of God's ways and wisdom compared to the world's ways. God turns scraps, worthless leftovers, remnants of sinful humanity into royalty, into His glorious, beautiful, eternally blessed people. He rescues objects of His wrath and makes them objects of His mercy, grace, and His everlasting favor. And Paul describes this eloquently for us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you'd like to turn there, beginning at verse 20. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but I want you to hear all of it. Paul writes, beginning at verse 20, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debtor of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. Now Paul doesn't elaborate in Romans 11 as he does here in 1 Corinthians. But in three words in Romans 11.5 he says the same thing about God's remnant people whether Jews or Gentiles. They are chosen by grace. Chosen by grace. Their blessing, their status, their rescue is entirely by God's sovereign choice. By His electing, saving love. He grants pardon, forgiveness to those whom He chooses. He shows mercy to whom He decides to show mercy. And He has compassion on whomever He determines to have compassion. And over and over and over, all day long, as we read in Romans 10, 21, all day long, God held out His hand of mercy to ethnic Israel. He showed them that He is a God of grace, that His love, His kindness, His required righteousness cannot be bought or earned by sinners. It can only be given. And He delights to give it to those who humble themselves, who repent of their self-righteousness, who renounce their self-sufficiency or self-reliance. And to those alone who turn from sin and themselves and turn to Him, trusting Him alone and His gracious offer, His gift of forgiveness uh, and undeserved blessing comes. Now, even though this message, this gospel of God's grace was revealed, even though it was taught and repeatedly pictured, to ethnic Israel, such that God's elect, His remnant, true Israel saw it and heard it and believed. The vast majority did not. They did not receive His word in humility and faith, but with pride and independence, they relied on and believed in 
their own works, their own moral efforts and religious performance, their own ability to merit God's blessing and favor. Now in verse 6 here in, in chapter 11, Paul states clearly and emphatically that these two views of salvation are mutually exclusive. He says, but if, but if it, and he's talking about salvation, if salvation is by grace, it is no longer, or it could be translated and probably a little better, it cannot be on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So Paul is saying that salvation by God's grace is never in any way whatsoever assisted by or completed by man's effort. Never by any form of cooperation. Even faith, saving faith, the ability to trust God itself is God's gift not man's contribution. Grace never needs a helping hand to make it effective. The Spirit of God alone works in a sinner's heart effectually to bring him to life, to give him a new heart, born from above, and to enable him to believe unto salvation. William Still, a very uh, well-known and loved Scottish pastor, wrote this. Grace is the very antithesis of works. R.C. Sproul wrote, Paul makes it simple. It is one or the other, grace or works. Our only hope is grace. Calvin, in his Romans commentary, says, Quote, the grace of God and the merit of works are so opposed to one another that if we establish one, we destroy the other. You might remember when Martin Luther defended uh, the utter exclusivity of God's uh, saving, initiating grace and its sole sufficiency, he appealed to Jesus' teaching in John 6, verse 63. That's where Jesus said, It is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who gives life. The flesh, meaning man's natural ability, the flesh is of no help at all. A lot of you may remember the King James or the older translations of that verse. The flesh profits nothing. Man has nothing of value to add, to offer, to contribute in order to gain salvation. Fallen humanity is morally bankrupt before a holy God. In his famous debate with Erasmus about justification, Luther appealed to this teaching, to Jesus' teaching about the flesh. And when Erasmus suggested that man must cooperate or contribute something, Erasmus said, something, some little something to salvation, Luther reminded him 
that the flesh profits nothing. He said, my dear Erasmus, that nothing is not a little something. <laughs> nothing is nothing. Now, I have two concluding thoughts or implications this morning from God's abounding, utterly uh, sufficient grace. First of all, grace means that God is never moved. He's never incited to love us or to bless us or forgive us, to redeem us because of our efforts, our good deeds. Nothing God ever does for us is motivated by our works, past, present, or future. Nothing foreseen in us or by us. Nothing from us after we are converted. Nothing achieved or accomplished by uh, sanctification. Rather, all God does for us is due to His own good pleasure. It pleases Him. It is His joy to love the outcast, to rescue the helpless, to transform the lowly, to exalt the humble, to show mercy and pardon to the guilty. It pleases Him to call sinners out of darkness into the light, into the life and glory of His eternal kingdom. Uh, William Still wrote, We should never be lulled by Satan into thinking that when we are launched into the Christian life by the sovereign inauguration of God's electing purpose, there's chosen by grace, we should never be thinking thereafter all we do in response to grace is self-effort. No, our thankfulness when we feel we have done a good job for God should be to thank Him and not ourselves for enabling us. For He is not indifferent with respect to our effort and what it costs us to respond to His grace. In heaven, He will reward us for all effort on our part. This He is able and willing in His generosity to do because He knows that it was all inspired by His grace. Excuse me one second. Now the second, the second implication, the second thought about God's grace, God's redeeming grace, means that self-salvation is impossible for man. And over the last, uh, the past generation or so, our society, you know, has bought into the self-improvement movement <laughs> uh, and its corresponding self-esteem mantra almost entirely. It's no wonder that sociologists now consider America a post-Christian or a secular nation. Our self-reliance has fostered increasing God-defiance. In particular, a growing, pronounced apathy and animosity toward Christianity. And the irony is that we are still 
a very religious nation. Much like Athens, when Paul visited it in the first century and found it to be a city-state, you remember, he said, full of idols. Sounds real current. And false religions proclaiming self-salvation messages. Now, in this flood of self-centeredness and arrogant self-sufficiency, the only hope for flawed human beings is the gospel of grace that calls self-consumed people not to pamper, not to indulge, not to excuse, not to find, not to love, not to medicate themselves, but in humility, what does Jesus say? To deny themselves and to submit to, to believe, to trust in the one true God who alone extends to them, holds out to them a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Sola gratia, God's grace alone, beloved, is found solus Christus, in Christ alone. So what is the difference? What distinguishes ethnic Israel from believing Israel? Ethnic Jews from true Jews? The visible church from the invisible church? Those who profess the true faith from those who possess it? What distinguishes true believers from make-believers? Jesus Christ the Son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity who was incarnate, crucified, died, buried, resurrected, ascended, and is now seated at the right hand of His Father on high as the Lord of glory, the only mediator between God and man. He alone is the difference. He alone. Everyone, beloved, who trusts in Him will never be ashamed, will never be disappointed in His amazing, saving grace. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank You that You have made it so clear in the one true gospel that our only hope is in You, and your great saving love and saving grace poured out upon us because of the work of Christ in our behalf. We rejoice in that great grace, Lord, that sovereign grace that calls us, that called us in the past and continues to sustain us even today, each and every day as we lean upon Christ alone and all that He is and does for us as we walk with Him. We pray that by Your Spirit's work in our hearts, that You would enable us to truly submit ourselves to the Savior moment by moment, and that He would continue to do that work, conforming us into His glorious likeness, that You, O sovereign triune God, may receive all the glory. And we ask it now for Christ's sake. Amen.